mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And we're here to tell their stories. Here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started, as always. The hashtag needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasoans. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Simons are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on the weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. My guest today writes a personal blog, but the content also appears in the Sunday edition of the Las Cruces Sun News Opinion section. He's driven a taxi cab in New York City, worked for a large law firm in San Francisco, and during one of his stints in Las Cruces, he lived in an old school bus while he wrote. Peter Goodman, have I missed anything? Uh, well, I have traveled a lot of roads that were less traveled at the time. And some of them were not paved either. Uh, many of them were not paved. Even the road to uh, Dripping Springs was unpaved. Well, that was before my time here in Las Cruces. I know you've done a whole bunch of things. You know, it just occurred to me, um, you and I probably see each other most often at the Las Cruces Farmer's Market. market Farmer's and Crafts Market. And, and, you know, I, um, with the exception of one or two times last winter, maybe just in the last month or two, I started to come back regularly. Did you, were you going regularly during the pandemic or? Yes, we buy our, uh, you know, we like to support the uh, the local uh, farmers and right. that's our, that's a good part of our weekly food intake is stuff that we get so they were compressed the other stuff was closed because of the pandemic uh they let the food vendors uh stay open and we were over there in the plaza pretty much every saturday morning well i'm actually glad to get back to my my usual saturday morning on the days that we do go there um when i you know you and i don't always run into each other because we're not there at the same time but i think at some point during our ventures to the farmer's market we find our way over to randy's table and uh, have a good little Saturday morning discussion. That's my, that's my little refuse yes. from the the world. Uh, I, I think of it as the village well, uh, <laughs> where people can gather and solve all the problems of the world and or talk none to of each them. other or, and yeah, whatever. Now, do you guys? You guys do you and uh, your wife Dale do some uh, gardening? Are you farming? I wouldn't call it farming, but you have small vegetable garden at home. We right? definitely have veg- grow vegetables at home, and uh, she does the bulk of it, but. I am involved, yeah. Now, I, the other thing I realized is that I had not uh, had. I still read the Las Cruces Sun News, uh, usually via their face, whatever appears in my Facebook feed, I'll click on. I still have my subscription. It's been um, not quite 10 years, but almost that long since I actually got a, a print edition. Now, you still are publishing I'm st- every week. I'm still writing the Sunday column every week. It appears in the Sun News as well as on uh, KRWG's website uh, and my own uh, uh, blog. It's Views from Soledad Canyon, is that what it's called? Yeah. Okay. Views, views, from, views from Soledad Canyon. And then I, the, son, the uh, KRWG asked me several years ago to if I would modify it for a radio commentary. So that's heard on KRWG and KTAL uh, every week, several times on on. KRWG. 
Okay, and I did, you know, I saw a couple of a uh, couple of your 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 entries there, and I went back, and you know, there was a time when I was following a little bit more closely. Do you now? Do you still get a print edition of the Sun News? I do. Yes, daily. Uh, daily and Sunday. Yes. Okay. Now I think my last, the last thing I gave up, and um, you know, as as it happens, we're in the digital age, and um, I really don't know a whole lot of people who still get. I would imagine. I'm going to guess. I don't have to ask him this because I'm going to see him next week. My 80-year-old father probably still gets a Washington Post delivered every day. You know, if I if I had not been a journalist and were not writing a column for the Sun News and wanting to support it, um, I would perhaps just go with I do read most of the stuff online. On the other hand, I love to do the Sudoku. I read the comics, and I do the bridge column. Well, there's something to be said, and this is the last thing I gave up was the Sunday edition. There's... There really is something about having an, a physical Sunday edition paper in your hand with a, with your coffee. Um, oh yeah, uh, I you know I I have spent the last few years that I did read the the print edition. I found myself usually reading the Sunday at some park somewhere while my kids were climbing and uh, you know having my coffee. But uh, you should, certainly haven't shied away from um, I I don't know if the term calling out or exposing or or talking about. Uh, some local uh, elected officials that we we both know to one degree or another. Uh, I can't seem to remember the guy's name, but a couple of years ago you had plenty of material uh, to write about a local elected official over there at the county building. Um, I have had at, at was that Bradley? Oh, he's a he was a candidate, and of course there have been sheriffs. Um, um, the guy I'm I, thinking of. Um, well, let me give you a little hint. I can't. I, I'm not going to say his name, but. Profound cognitive and intellectual deficiencies, because <laughs> um, I don't want to use the C. The, I don't want to say the word corruption, I, but I, I hate to say it, but that description uh, wouldn't necessarily uh, pull somebody out from a uh, list of public officials. Oh, I think this this guy but, stands out. But you know, you you and you, that actually was. But, but you're certainly right, generally, um, that I do muckraking. Um, I have. I, I'm try to, I try to be careful. I don't. Somebody comes in and says the sheriff is doing thus and so. I don't you know, run to the presses, but I investigate. And and actually, it wasn't just one. There were prior to who prior to who's who's serving right now. There were two in a row, I believe, yeah, who gave was, you plenty of plenty of fodder. It was um, it was one of the more interesting series. I mean, sometimes I just write about you know global warming or different issues, but. Certain times I do a local investigation, and it's concerning. Um, and it, you know, some of the things they were doing, but also, and I'm not, as you know, I'm sympathetic to law enforcement, but I'm not walking around with a support your local police. Neither uh, do I. <laughs> yeah, you know, bumper sticker. Right. Um, but I had, you know, in one case I had somebody, and I won't describe them, but you know, they an experienced um, police officer with experience in the military as well, basically call me. He had not been a source for what I'd been writing about that particular sheriff. But as he thanked me for what I was writing, I could hear his voice breaking. Um, and, you know, to be able to write stuff that means that much to some people in their lives, um, you know, is a rare privilege that, kind of humbles me 
Well, and, you know, one of the things that's impressed me about you, Peter, is, you know, I think we've probably known each other maybe five, six years. And, you know, given some of the stuff that we're going to get into in this episode with your history and what I know about your worldview and the way you see things, um, I think a lot of people, uh, and I know this, you know, unfortunately all too well, I think a lot of people in the field of law enforcement would assume uh, that you aren't sympathetic uh, and that uh, you're you're not a friend. But um, I think, you know, you and I have had an experience together. I think you, you came to one of the first classes mm-hmm. I taught uh, for a, a course, a community outreach project that I've done and hoping to actually get back done, uh, started here soon. Uh, and that is explaining how law enforcement officers are trained uh, with regard to how and when to use force and how much and how long. And um, I, I thought that was a great course that you and uh, uh, Officer Barlow did. I, I wish the current sure, the current sheriff, whom I generally admire and like, would put on something like that. But I also had, um, I won't waste a lot of time talking about it, but when I was the Las Cruces Bureau Chief for the El Paso Times, it happened that I wrote a story on the first female police officer, and I was riding along with her. And we were given a ride to another officer back to where his vehicle was, and they got a call for a burglary. So I went with them. Now, you would think they might have made me stay in the car, but they were kind of intent on what they were doing. So being me, I followed them right into the house where this burglary was supposedly in progress. And, you know, typical Las Cruces house where you go down a long hallway and there's doors to the right and left. Okay. Um, the As we did that, the door farthest away from us to the left opened and the woman and I, the woman police officer and I each had a door to jump into and the other officer did not. So he drew his gun and pointed it. And this tall gentleman came out of the door, emerged from the door, having taken a nap. He was a friend of the family that the neighbors <laughs> didn't know about. And afterward, that police officer was quite shaken because he knew how close, you know, if that guy had, if the uh, gentleman who came out of the door had reacted by scratching his head or jumping or whatever you might do in surprise, he might have gotten shot. And it was it taught me some of what your um, event also taught us. Um, and I thought about it and realized that if, if, if there'd been a shooting, I couldn't have said it was wrongful. Yeah, and now what year was this? We're talking probably 1970s? Would have been 76, I think. Okay. Do you remember the name of that first female officer? No, I have my files somewhere, but I and I'll look. You didn't it up know I was going to ask you that question. Hmm? Um, no, I, it, I didn't know I was going to tell that story. <laughs> so you've you've done how many we'll call tours in Las Cruces now? I stumbled on down here in August of 1969 as a college dropout, having driven a cab in the city and worked run a youth center in Harlem, and I wanted to move to New Mexico for a year and. I decided, okay, the only way I can afford to do this is go back to school, so I went back to college. And I was basically here most of the next eight years till August of 77 uh, as a student, uh, as a writer, getting a couple of degrees, as a filmmaker, and then for a little more than three years as a full-time news person for the El Paso Times, their bureau chief, and also hosted a TV show. Then I wandered away because we didn't have a law school. I decided that I would like to go to law school. We didn't have one here, so I went away and then, of course, owed money after going through law school. Uh, And also, 
it's a game you learn to play, and if you can, you want to play it at the highest levels. Um, you know, you wouldn't. I, I this I don't want to aggrandize myself by using this analogy, but if you were playing for Duke, uh, if you were starting for Duke in the NCAA, you wouldn't then go, you know, play for Sadie's Storm Door and uh, you know Rain Barrel Company and Oshkosh. You would want to play in the NBA. So I wanted to do big time law, and I did that for a while, and then wandered around China and did various things for years. Always thought of Crucis as my hometown, eventually, and visited if I was in this country every year. Um, and I moved back. My wife and I bought the house in 2010. There was a lawsuit we had to finish working on, a huge one, and uh, actually moved here full-time in 2011. So that's well, my long-winded answer. The, the long. So you've, you've done it a couple times, but yep. now, so you were here at New Mexico State University in the 70s, um, and I'm going to imagine you studied journalism. Yes, uh, because cons- it, because it was filmmaking. Filmmaking is what I was really studying, but it was under journalism in those days. So, would you would you consider yourself, I, you know, having said that you were a bureau chief for the El Paso Times, did you concentrate in school more on on print, or no? In, in, to the extent I, I I was so I mean I had worked a bit on the newspaper and the yearbook in high school and college and whatnot, but. Um, Really, the El Paso Times wanted a bureau chief to Im- improve its standing in New Mexico, you know, enlarge its presence. And a, a gentleman who would have been great for it, who had been a newsman in Nam, uh, knew about it, but he wanted to write a novel, so he told me about it. I was looking for a job. He told me what to say. Here's what they're probably looking for. I and I was I'd done so little journalism. I used poetry as my writing sample, uh, <laughs> and then took that job, and it was uh, it was interesting. Now that period of time we're talking about the 1970s. Um, of course, I was born in 1974. Didn't my didn't make my way here. That's the uh, year I started as a newsman. Yeah, so I didn't make my way here until the late 1990s. What what were the stories? I mean, what was the big news going on in El Paso, Las Cruces during that time? Oh, you know, some of them are still the same things, the airport and who's going to be mayor. The city council was very different. Uh, There was uh, some big program that was going to be out at White Sands that they were trying to get at Seafarer. That wasn't the name, but it was something like that. Um, Well, the, the usual sort of thing. Was there anything, any any big, anything that stands out? If we, if somebody were to study the history of Las Cruces, what, what big events were there in the 70s that you might have well, covered? Um, certainly a local controversy was um, there had been urban renewal, uh, which uh, people of color whom I knew at that time here and elsewhere removed, referred to as Negro removal. And one of the local issues that I got involved, very involved covering was um, they had a HUD project, and um, it wasn't uh, urban renewal, but it was kind of the next phase of trying to improve neighborhoods. And a lot of well-meaning progressives, some of whom became close friends of mine, were trying to do this. And there was a mixture of opposition between kind of right-wingers, but also people who lived in the Mesquite area. And it it was a fascinating uh, sort of, missing of minds where people's ideas just shot right past each other 
And Bob Munson, uh, who was mayor for part of that time, would say, hey, we're going to pave your streets. And a resident of you know, on Mesquite Street would say, oh, great. That means my children won't be able to play in the street anymore. They'll be hit by cars trying to go through fast. Uh, and my taxes will go up, so I can't afford it here. And my kids won't be able to buy a house down the block from me. Um, and we won't have our neighborhood feel. No, thank you. And... Meanwhile, some John Birch Society folks who, whom I won't name took advantage of it because they didn't like the government doing anything. And it was an interesting dispute, which I'm, I had to report on and not take sides on. And I watched it in fascination with sympathy for everybody. And that's interesting for me to hear because as somebody who came to Las Cruces and, you know, I came to New Mexico in 1998, Las Cruces in 99. Um, I mean, I certainly have watched the eastern part of this town grow. And I, you know, I've heard stories. That I was all where we dirt biked. And I knew, pe- I know people who have said, you know, everything. I remember when everything east of Telshore was dirt, um, and then you know, you go a little bit farther back, and they, everything of Solano was dirt. The idea that uh, there mis- was a professor, my friend and professor, when he came, the guy who hired him had basically come here when there was a cattle gate on Solano. Exactly, and I, you know, the idea to me though that Mesquite Street, which is right in the heart of Las Cruces as recently as the 1970s would still be dirt uh, is yeah. really fascinating. It was, and the idea of paving it was controversial for reasons I think I just gave some idea. And, and that's interesting. As somebody who grew up a mile and a half outside the Beltway, the idea that somebody, I mean, the yeah. idea of city roads are being unpaved is, is kind of an interesting, and that whole issue of I don't want it paved because cars are going to drive too fast and my, we'll lose our neighborhood feel, those are just some really interesting things. And honestly, something that I had not heard uh, about before, uh, you know, in, in Las Cruces here. Now, you mentioned something about driving a taxi cab. You're from New York originally. Yes, I grew I born in Brooklyn, grew up uh, in Westchester County, just outside the city. And What, what kind uh, of, uh, and now your background, I know you've told me you're, you're able to trace your, your ancestor here in the United States. On my far. mother's side, uh, uh, Walter Powers, I think it was at age of 14, left Glasgow and came to the U.S. In, and I in 1643. Wow. I think it was 1648. I'm sorry. And uh, I had a list somewhere my uh, aunt gave me that traced people back 13 generations from um, me to him. And, and growing up in New York, did you did you live in a in a, a neighborhood? I'm giving it quotes. Was it, a, you know, we lived in one of the strangest neighborhoods you can imagine. My parent, my father was a Jew from Brooklyn. My mother was an Episcopalian from northern Maine, farmer people, but they'd done well. And um, when they married, they decided they would live out in the suburbs. So they saw, they found a house. The name of the street was Memory Lane. It didn't even have a street number, and it was the ideal of kind of rural living. All the houses looked different. There were a lot of trees, uh, you know, surrounded by woods. And it looked wonderful. And they moved there. And um, soon after they moved there, my father saw he, he was a com- commuted to work in New York City. I know this is a long-winded answer, but I think it's worth it. Um, he got up one morning and he saw this black car outside by their mailbox. And this is, you know, there were maybe four houses beyond us on that street. So he was suspicious. And he walked out there and the driver got out and recognized him. And said, Warren, and he'd known him from the military. My father had 
flown in World War II as a pilot uh, in the U.S. Marines. And this guy was an FBI agent assigned when Mr. Biddleman, who was the, I think, secretary of the U.S. Communist Party, had gatherings in the evening. The FBI would take license plates the way they did with the mafia. And uh, I was in one of the few neighborhoods where almost everybody else who lived there was either communist or very far left. Um, and this was Does in that the explain? 50s when, you know. <laughs> Does that explain how the trajectory of your existence went? Were you influenced by your neighbors? The, I'm not calling you. We, look, no, we all no know you can call me whatever. I did end <laughs> up being very progressive. Um, I came to be a civil rights worker, and then when I came back from civil rights work and it was in a small town in Pennsylvania, people thought I must be against the war. I wasn't, but I looked, I read everything I could and decided the war sucked, the war in Vietnam. I uh, had no purpose and was bad for the country. But uh, So I came to be left as a young man. I wasn't. I wasn't influenced at all by that surrounding. The formative experience in my life was when I was in the first grade and I, I was the, sitting, I was in the back and I had my shoes off and the teacher said, put your shoes on. And I said, I don't know how to tie them, which she knew. I, I didn't recognize that, of course, she would know that that was a lie. Of course, I knew how to tie my shoes. Um, but I thought, you know, what if I couldn't? That's a sun so I got mad and I threw my shoe at her and hit her and, you know, was punished and dealt with thereafter. But the effect of that was that for it was a small town, so there weren't that many people new in class in our classes going through as we went year to year. So for years, any new kid would come to town. There, kids would tell them that story, and I was the guy. Nothing really, you know, malicious or serious. But if somebody wanted to, you know, say a word that I can't say on radio in class, he would say, "Peter, I'll bet you wouldn't say such and such to Miss Masiska." And, of course, I had to. Of course. I was my rep. I was that guy. You, you had to keep your reputation. And, and that kind of helped give me a, a serious skepticism about authority uh, and a rebellious attitude. So a lot of the things that people look at me and say, damn, that's great that you stand up and, you know, criticize the mayor or the senator or whoever it might, or the sheriff. I'm kind of the opposite. I have to check my impulse to do that. Uh, and be more reasonable with authority. And obviously, I've learned over the years. Well, how did you end up uh, driving a cab? Um, after I dropped out of college, I was working with kids at a school up in Westchester uh, for troubled kids from the, the bad neighborhoods in the five boroughs of New York. And this incredibly uh, articulate gentleman came to try to convince people to come work for his program, the People's Program. Name was Arthur Dunmire. If we had him here, you could do a hell of a show. He'd he'd been with some band that was sort of nationally known, not one of the real big ones, but he also had a heroin problem, and he'd been down for a couple of felonies, and he ran a program that was trying to help kids in the neighborhood, help people get off uh, heroin, and help kids in the neighborhood not get on it. But it was he called it the People's Program, and everybody who worked in it was black and had uh, been an addict at one point. Um, some of these people were former bodyguards for Malcolm X. And he came 
and he wanted to talk some of the black counselors who worked with the kids into going and working for him because it was real. He didn't get any of them, but he got this white, stupid white guy to go down into Harlem and work with him. I was the only one there who hadn't been down for a felony, hadn't had a you know heroin problem, and um, you know they were serious people. I mean, I remember going to Arthur's apartment when they first when I first started working with them, and we went into the bedroom, and there were several people sitting on a bed looking at me and saying, "Just remember, we'll." We'll kill for you or you. Um, so, you know, they were interesting people. But I was not a moneymaker. In fact, I shared part of the salary I got through some do-gooder organization with other people who needed it more. So I started driving a cab um, to make some money. And I loved it. Were there? I mean, you know, when you think about being a cab driver in New York City, and of course now... Um, it's not like I've been to New York City any time in the last 25 mm-hmm. years, but um, not the safest thing. I mean, notwithstanding, well, we could, we could get into the whole ride-sharing thing, but you, you know, taxi cabs now have a little partition. There's some secure, mm-hmm. some safety and security. I would imagine in the 1960s, driving a cab in New York City was not the safest thing. They, you were, could they do. were just putting the partition in. Um, I will say I drove wherever people wanted to go and hated the fact that many cab drivers, you know, would not take somebody to Harlem, would not pick up a black person on the assumption he was going to Harlem. Um, or if they got to Harlem, Harlem for some reason, they'd turn, off the, turn on their off-duty light and speed south uh, immediately. I did have, I, I never, you know, people paid their fares for the most part. And I had one time that was certainly worth telling about, I guess. Let's hear I, it. I had uh, picked up these two guys. Um, I think one was black, one was Puerto Rican. And um, in Washington Heights, they were going 128th and Lenox uh, to a bar there. And as we went down there, I could tell from the conversation that they were into various crimes like the numbers, uh, maybe prostitution, gambling, I don't know. But they were into some rackets, but they were not people I worried would not pay the fare or anything like that. Um, and when we got to where they were going, uh, one stayed in the cab, the other went in and got a short, fat, black gentleman and brought him out and sat him between the two of them in the back seat. And they had, um, he had cheated them in a drug deal or done something he ought not to have done in their view. So they relieved him of all his money and told him in, you know, no uncertain terms that he had better not do repeat his act, whatever his transgression was. And then, um, and at one point, one of them leaned forward and said, you know, sorry to put you through all this cabbie. And I said, no, doesn't, doesn't bother me. You know, I get paid anyway. Have and, you ever seen, you ever seen that? T- uh, let me, let me finish, finish the story. Because it's, it's, it's dopey. It's better. It's dopey. Um, when they, put this guy out the next thing that happened was uh so fast i couldn't figure out what was happening but when the dust cleared as it were um there was uh there were basically three people maybe including the original guy maybe not who had decided on the spur of the moment to rob the two guys my original fares so there were two more people in the back seat and there was a gentleman sitting across the front seat from me 
with the shiniest piece I've ever seen pointed right at me. And it was it was just really weird because they're all, first of all, I didn't, I didn't realize this at first, but they thought I was not just the cab driver. I was in with these people, so they were concerned about you know, what I might do. But they're all the out yelling directions. And I said, yeah, I'm perfectly happy to go where whoever's in control of this cab wants to go, but could I have one set of directions, please? And then some of the dialogue thereafter, you couldn't come up with high, you know, one one guy in the back reached through the part where the petition was not covering and had either the side of a gun or the side of a knife, either a gun barrel or the side side of a knife blade rubbed against my neck and inquired, you got a family to consider, cab driver? And one of the others yelled, hey, throw the cab driver out. And the other guy up front said, well, who'll drive, you? And it was weird. Even the guys getting robbed had to tell these guys, hey, it ain't cool to wave your guns around. The police will get interested in this. And we drove up to where they told me to drive in the Bronx, left these guys off to go into some building, and they were told, don't stick your heads out or we'll blow them off, and went back to a couple of blocks from uh, the original bar in Lenox, uh, on Lenox Avenue. One, two, yeah. And how have you not submitted this as some sort of screenplay? Or, or Saturday Night Live sketch, one or the other, yeah. I mean... At least you ask a different question for everybody I tell that story to asks the same question. And, and for somebody who is a writer, I find it interesting that you've never uh, put that down. It is it is very interesting, though, Peter, that because I know you and I know that you're a writer, some of the things that you've done, like, um, you know, things we haven't talked about yet or, you know, just driving the cab, walking through China, going down to South America – Almost, I don't want to use the word cliche, but it's very much the writer's life. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of reminds me of almost like a Hemingway or a. Um, it just it, it just sounds so funny, but the story you tell there, uh, you know, I just don't know how you've never put that down. But how did you? So you you left driving the cab to come down here to New Mexico, right? Right. The first time to go to school, but now, I thought it would be just a year. I thought I'd go back to it. I, I loved it. You I love driving. A I cab. love Manhattan. I love the streets of Manhattan. Uh, whether I was driving a cab or hanging out in a coffee house or walking through the streets with my camera. I just, you know, loved the streets of New York. I was a real street person in that sense. I right. Mean, I, had, I did have an apartment. Now, the the thing I find, you know, interesting, and, you know, you and I have talked about a little bit about this before, you ended up going to law school where? Oh, do I have to say? You can geography. I mean, you don't have to name the school. You can geography. Back in New England. Okay, so you went you, you went to law school in New England. Now, when you were in law school, was there a particular area, area of law that you were interested in or you thought you'd get involved in? I thought I would probably either do uh, trial lawyering, they call it litigation, um, which is sort of what I thought I would do, or maybe some kind of foreign law. I took a course on law in China and law in Russia and thought I might do that, but I think I pretty much knew I was going to head into trial lawyering. Now, for somebody, you know, of course, you walked in here today, and, you know, it's been two, three weeks since I've seen you, uh, and you have a slightly different look. You've cut a good 18 inches of hair. Um, (laughs) You know, to say that that your general, in the time I've known you, your general appearance is not one that one would expect for somebody in a very large San Francisco law firm. Uh, would be a little bit of an understatement. Um, 
you were practicing in, in San Francisco doing that big time luring stuff when during the eighties? Uh graduated from law school in nineteen eighty and already had a job at a very large firm. Worked there for five years and then wandered off to Asia and thought I would stay there, but uh, stayed three and a half years. Um, and when I came back to visit this country, I ended up, I won't bore, bore you with the details, but ended up, ended up getting involved, helping out it, with a client that I had worked on the case of before. And so I practiced five more years with that law firm and then independently, but most of what I did was doing specialty stuff for litigation teams at that law firm or a couple other places. Now, did you did you have to kind of resign yourself to the fact that you had joined a big a big private law firm in you know downtown San Francisco? Did you have to do the whole cut the hair thing and clean yourself up and um, somewhat? Uh, but it was you know I, I I didn't look like they wanted me. To, I, mean, I had a beard. I did have the beard trimmed. I think my hair had been down to my belt and certainly wasn't by then. I think I'd cut it somewhat in law school. But um, on the other hand, I came to work on a motorcycle. Um, and if it was, I actually lived on a boat part of the time. But I came to work on a motorcycle. So if it was raining, I came in with this huge rain suit and motorcycle helmet looking like a man from Mars and, or somebody in a hazmat suit. And, but then I had a three-piece suit under it. And you were doing um, civil litigation? Yes. Uh, what kind of product liability or real estate? or I mean, You know, some antitrust, um, you know, just a variety of things, whatever our, our clients needed done. Toward the end, we were kind of Cisco's hit team to parachute in when a case got serious. Now, having, having, been, having done the civil rights work uh, that you had done, uh, one might expect now, especially and and I something I just kind of thought of th- this era uh, in San Francisco, 1980. I want to say was right after Harvey Milk was assassinated. Yeah, I was actually I my interview I think with with a law firm in San Francisco, either for a summer job or for that job. So shortly before 1980, I was interviewing in San Francisco, sort of the day that he'd been a, he'd been shot. Um, and there's a lot going on. I mean, yeah. not only is that, but we were talking about the, the very early days of the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever feel like, had you put it in your mind that you put your civil rights stuff behind you? Uh, no. I mean, that's quite a big departure. No, uh, you know, my thought was I need to do this to pay off my debts and then I can either practice law for public interest or, you know, just stop lawyering and write or, you know, whatever. But I want to get these debts paid off uh, with my initial attitude. I was very fortunate in that, for whatever reason, I did not have to, I thought, I feared I would have to work on cases that I really didn't agree with our client. And because there were a lot of big companies, but the one where I really felt that way, it was an individual, some very wealthy individuals against a big company um and they deserved to get hammered and ultimately did but most of these things were either disputes between big companies so i felt like okay yeah i know i could be making better use of my time but i'm not working against anything i believe in it's kind of like playing chess you know i'm using my intellectual tools to play this rather complex game um 
or in some cases I felt we were right. And certain products that I actually wrote a column about one recently, there was a, a, a Texas company that made a practice of finding smaller companies where they could kind of gin up some claim against them and keep the company from going public and basically scare them into a settlement that was undeserved. We fought them in about uh, probably five or six different cases ultimately. And I felt like we were doing the right thing. The last case we did was a huge one where there was a a drug for a particular um, Japanese company company had developed a drug for pulmonary hypertension, I think it was, Um, and um, I may be saying the term wrong, I certainly knew it (laughs) 10 years ago, but another company that had the drug that was the best thing on the market to control that disease couldn't do as well as this drug potentially could if it passed all the tests, Um, but the company that was supposed to help get the FDA approval and put the kibosh on that. And we sued on behalf of this Japanese company and also on behalf of a whole lot of people who had this disease, which is debilitating. Um, and, you know, we were right. We had a lot of cases where, yeah, there were... I think maybe that... the people I worked with, um, and certainly I felt this way, were more, in, you know, were able to have some independent view of what was going on. And if we had a, if we had a client whose conduct was, would not be appealing to jurors, um, I mean, we certainly worked with the witnesses to make them more appealing, but we also settled the case and right. we didn't go to trial with a loser, but, you know. Well, and those are things that, you know, somebody who's who's got quite a bit of experience, certainly not as an attorney, but uh, being in courtrooms, and, and, and those are considerations that a lot of people don't realize have to be taken, um, you know. In a local prosecution. Yeah, and, and, and one of the things that kind of strikes me is, you know, some of the cases I've been involved in where uh, uh, children have been victims of some horrible crimes, and, uh, you know, a disclosure comes 10 years later, and they do a absolutely wonderful job testifying. I mean, beyond mm-hmm. imagination. And unfortunately, I've, I've learned all too often on a jury, there is always one or two holdouts, one or two people mm-hmm. who simply cannot convict somebody of committing a crime like that um, without physical evidence and with a delayed disclosure. So what you're left with is having to try a case again and having to put that now teenager through having to testify mm-hmm. about what happened to them again and you, and a lot of times they, they don't want to do it for understand reasons that right. are very understandable. So then you have to plead a case out to something much lesser. Right. Um, and so th- these are some of the nuances that I think people don't you know don't quite understand about the legal game. Absolutely. Um, but in any case, you 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 did all that big time lawyering stuff, and you make your way back to New Mexico, and as if you had not re- lived enough of a writer's life, you lived in some very interesting uh, digs, if you will. You're talking about when I was here um, the first time, and oh, I realized I didn't realize it was the first time. But well, the first time I considered 1969 to 77, but for part of I think it was 1972. For part of that, I was back in New York working in a program with uh, students of color at uh, 
City University. And at that point, I over what I know you want to talk about. Uh, my then girlfriend and I, and she was from here and wanted to come back. Um, and I wanted to come back. In fact, I wouldn't have gone to New York except she pushed me. But we found a school bus in an old yard in Brooklyn and bought it um, and put, you know, took the seats out and made it like a kind of not very, uh, not very uh, elegant camper and drove it back. We started driving up around Canada, and then she had a family emergency, and we came back here. And I, I lived in that um, for quite a while. When I started with the Sun News, or with the El Paso Times, one of the deals was I was going to send everything. I had to have a telephone, and I hadn't had a telephone of any kind myself. And I had to, uh, my dog and I lived in the school bus, and they had to put a telephone. The telephone company won't just put a telephone in your, at those days, in in your place. They have to have a telephone pole. So we put up a big four by four as a telephone pole. And somebody at the El Paso Times uh, bookkeepers was shocked. Why are we paying for a telephone pole? But you know, I lived in that with the dog, and and it was where I worked and where I lived. Where for did you park? Wow. It was actually off of Spina. Well, initially, for, I lived there. I had it for quite a while um, out some, outside the uh, former professor's house for a while. Um, and for a while was living in his house, but it was parked out there. But then I basically had it parked at, uh, I want to say, Espina, this side of Missouri. Um, there's kind of a little trailer park in the back that you almost don't notice off the side street and then the front there's a, a, a row of little storefronts one was a restaurant uh that are kind of broken glass and nothing there and so it was a spina um you know certainly several blocks north of university um but it was um I have, South to, of Missouri, I I have to imagine that wasn't the most comfortable. I mean, it's it's oh, hot enough here, yeah. enough of the year. It was uh, incredibly hot, um, and there was a guy in a trailer next to me who um, was screaming all night. Usually, I, I finally learned enough to realize that the that who, whom he was screaming at loudly and sometimes obscenely uh, was God. Um, and you know he was having a know, religious experience, or expressing or an himself to God, or complaining. I don't, I don't remember the con the content, but it was certainly not uh, pleasant, conducive to a good night's sleep. And so, there added to your 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 discomfort during the day was only made but, more more uh, discomfort uh, uncomfortable. <laughs> but the fascinating thing for me, in retrospect, and at the time, I had been against the war, which was not a popular thing. I'd been a civil rights worker, was not entirely popular initially. Came to be so, and eventually people were against the war too. But I was this guy on his motorcycle, you know, writing poetry and making films and having very little to do with mainstream America. And all of a sudden I got this job, and I'm suddenly going to the city council meetings and going to the, to the reporter's table and plunking my motorcycle helmet down and starting to write. I had hair down on my belt and didn't look particularly well-dressed. And 
the then mayor Tommy Graham dubbed me Captain Zoom, which some retired city officials still call me. But I called it my crash course in Middle America, and I really, you know, I met a lot of wonderful people that I'd been estranged from as a group before, um, and partly was able to to break every scoop there was rather than Sun News because people took one look at me and they said, hey, Tommy Graham, don't control him. <laughs> um, and... Uh, you know, it was a pretty interesting experience. I mean, there were dramatic moments to it, but in terms of sort of harmonizing my own life with Middle America, for lack of a better word. Well, we've kind of been all over the place, and I'm happy, and I'm, I'm glad about that. I have this really bad habit of trying to be a little bit too chronological, uh, <laughs> you know, with things when I interview people. You know, uh, certainly you've never shied away from expressing through your blog and, and your, your columns in the Sun News your your political opinions. Um, you know, we don't really, I do my darndest, this is probably the one place in my life where I don't do that is on this mm-hmm. show. So other than maybe what's interesting you, uh, you know, politically right now, what what what's going on in the world right now that you're most interested in and most writing, most interested in writing about? Well... I'm actually about to um, publish online a novel that purports to be a woman's journal in 1914 in Oakland, California. I'm writing a lot about the 20th century small town in Pennsylvania, different generations and things happening. I write a lot of poetry that, you know, I I think what in contemporary society, there are a couple of things that um, obsess or trouble me. One, obviously, is our deep divisions. Um, it shouldn't be there, shouldn't be that way, hasn't always been that way, uh, is a danger to democracy. Um, obviously, global warming, um, you know, which shouldn't be a political issue. But unfortunately... <laughs> um, is it, you know, that you're... You know, your lovely kids um, will have to live through this, and if they have kids, those kids will have seriously unfortunate kinds of lives or limited kinds of lives or painful kinds of lives because of us not having the strength of character to bite the bullet now and make the kind of changes we need to do. Um, You know, I have a great-grandson, but, you know, aside from that, it appalls me on behalf of all of us. Well, Peter, other than the uh, Las Cruces Sun News Sunday edition, where can we find your content? Um, I'm not writing much on my blog. I will be putting out uh, the book I mentioned sometime in the next couple of months. It'll be available online, uh, uh, as will, I think, a book of recent poems. Where online? Um well, probably I'll have a reference to it on my blog. I'll be publishing through Ingram Spark, um, and it'll probably be available. It'll probably be available, you know, from Amazon or wherever. So, if people wanted to keep an eye out for it, they can just go to Views from Soledad Canyon. Quick Google search. Yeah, I'll certainly have it there. Um, but that's that's where some, if somebody just wanted to keep up with whatever it is you're doing, yeah. Views from Soledad Canyon is the is the best way to do it. Yeah, I have not been posting that much in addition to my Sunday columns recently because I'm so busy, but yes. 
Well, Peter Goodman, this has been uh, about as easy an interview. And like you know, we talked before. You know, when when I interview people you know, who have worked in broadcasting or journalism in some form or fashion, I almost feel like I'm cheating because it's I don't have to do much work. And and today has been one of those days. You've been a very very easy person to interview. And anytime I get a chance to sit down and talk to you uh, is a good time for me. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed uh, this latest episode of the Square Peg Podcast with Peter Goodman. Uh, I'm your host Andrew Lawrence, and we'll see you on the next episode. Uh, the Square Pick Podcast. Proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo Mike Communications.